Welcome to the latest installment of Paradigm Shifts, the official podcast of the National Foundation of Emergency Medicine. Uh, The purpose of this podcast is to create visibility for young and soon-to-be prolific academic emergency physicians by highlighting their research and their vision for their field. We hope to introduce these ideas to you, the listener, and to expand and maybe even redirect your thinking toward the forefront of both science and philosophy in emergency medicine. Today, Dr. Peter Rosen and I are joined by Dr. Gentry Wilkerson. Dr. Wilkerson is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Amongst other things, he is the assistant program director for the emergency medicine residency program. He is the co-chair on the opioid task force for his hospital and is involved in multiple areas of research, including opioids, angioedema, congestive heart failure, and today's topic, sickle cell disease. Uh, Dr. Wilkerson, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So you have several research interests, uh, but the primary one we're going to be talking about today is going to be sickle cell disease. And you've distilled three different paradigms you want people to shift in their mind. Uh, We'll just kind of go over them before we start the discussion. But the first is to uh, have a restoration of empathy for patients with sickle cell disease as they present to the emergency department. Uh, The second one is to recognize the burden that the care of sickle cell disease patients has on the healthcare system. And the third is recognizing that the vaso-occlusive episodes associated with sickle cell disease are a diagnosis of exclusion. Uh, so before we get into these, can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this field of research? Sure. Um, so sickle cell disease is something that's not uncommon. There's 100,000 people in the United States that have sickle cell disease. So I think every emergency physician is pretty familiar with the patients that come in with this. I did medical school at University of Miami uh, in Florida. So we had a fair number of sickle cell patients that would present there. And then I did residency at Kings County Hospital SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, there I was exposed to a number of patients with sickle cell disease. And You know, I think that at at times you get called into a rut uh, with sickle cell and just sort of treat them on a a conveyor belt of, oh, let's just give opioids and if they fail, uh, we'll just get them admitted to the hospital and really not thinking too much about it. Sometimes it can be a very frustrating venture. I don't think too many ED docs are jumping up excited, oh, there's a sickle cell patient that's come in. So um, I was kind of in that in that realm. And then I realized that this was a patient population that, that really was, was given short shrift. And, you know, they've got a terrible disease. Their life expectancy is going to be shortened by 20 to 30 years on average, although that's improving. They, uh, they've got a life of pain uh, in front of them. And, you know, I could do more to help them out. So that's how I kind of started with that first paradigm shift, the restoration of empathy for patients with sickle cell disease. And, you know, I realized that I could do a lot more with that. Um, so so I did start looking into it more and um, started developing different different projects with it, which we can get into as we go through this podcast. So when, when thinking about restoration of empathy, we need to recognize that uh, the medical system often doesn't treat sickle cell patients very fairly. Uh, they come into the to the emergency department often as a as a last resort. They don't want to come into the hospital. There have been plenty of studies that have shown that it is something that they fear having to do. Uh, they've experienced all sorts of long waits and inadequate treatment. So they really don't want to come in in general, but when they do come in, we could do better taking care of them. And I noticed it at University of Maryland that there was a lot of practice variation between the providers in in how we were treating these patients. And and I know that there are some guidelines that were published in 2014, the NHLBI guidelines. So that was one of the first things that I did with sickle cell disease was looking at the guidelines and looking at the way we're caring for patients at, at University of Maryland. And I just developed a set of guidelines for the use in our emergency department to help streamline the care of these patients. I think that 
It's an entity that it, we know what causes this, we know that this is a real disease, and yet somehow, as we just see uh, patient upon patient with the same presentation, we become almost numb to it. Even though we can't turn away from the fact that these are patients that are in need of our help, it's very easy to become numb to the fact that this is, uh, like you mentioned, another sickle cell patient. And the approach to, I think, a lot of what we do in emergency medicine, as I've heard Peter say before, is uh that the patient's not here to entertain you. It's not a fascinating disease. It's not even sometimes a satisfying disease to treat because the pain control is so difficult. So I can certainly attest to even in Tucson where we don't have a very high sickle cell population, when patients come in, it can be very difficult when you see the same patient that you know by name and that they come in with the same complaints. It can be difficult to say, how am I making any progress, any headway in trying to get this patient treated? One of the things I noticed was that when I worked in Denver, we didn't have many sickle patients, probably because of the altitude. But because of that, every time they came in, they were treated like drug addicts seeking drugs. And I think that it's in part... One of the problems in treating a disease that has chronic pain, we tend to forget there's a disease that's causing the pain. And I noticed that in San Diego, where again, we still didn't have very many sicklers because there aren't all that many blacks who live in San Diego, things changed radically when we developed a program of assistance with our hematologists so that here was a special problem that had a special response as opposed to here's another pain-seeking drug addict. Yeah, there's, there's definite reasons why emergency physicians start to develop this sense of, you know, this is just another patient that's seeking drugs. They... The overall population of sickle cell doesn't have a rate of addiction that's any higher than on average. However, if you look at the subset of patients that present to the emergency department, you know, you're starting to see a little bit higher of a, a rate. And then everybody kind of has this bias where they focus on the, the few patients that come in over and over again with behavioral uh, disturbances or aberrant behavior. Um, and those are the ones we kind of fixate on. And, you know, those patients are usually easily recognizable and shouldn't be too big of a dilemma in how to how to manage them, although they still are. Um, but it's the it's the rest of the sickle cell patients that we tend to lump in with those others that have displayed that aberrant behavior in the past, and we and we always just focus on that. Now I'm curious because you you have overlap in uh, working with an opioid task force and some of your research that you've done with opioids. Um, uh, can you describe a little more of uh, the patients that come in with more opioid-seeking behavior? Is it similar to the patients that have any other illness or any other opioid-seeking behavior that they kind of have the um, uh, uh, the same attitudes where if they're uh, uh, rejected from opioids, they tend to, or if they're tried to scale down a little bit on their treatment, they tend to get more upset. I mean, some of the things that are described usually in even the ABEM uh, tests of what to be looking out for. Yeah, it's it's difficult trying to describe what drug-seeking behavior is because anybody that has an unmet need is going to do something to try to meet that need. And if they have pain, they're going to do something to try to get that resolved. Now, that gets into kind of a loaded statement because you're starting to to touch on this idea of uh, pseudo-addiction that's a, a loaded term that has a lot of controversy associated with it, mostly because it was pretty much put forth by uh, drug companies. But, you know, I do recognize that if somebody has unmet 
analgesia requirements, they're they're going to act out. But you know, the patient that comes in time and time again, um, they have multiple port infections because of uh, self-injection, or there's evidence of uh, drug diversion, uh, seeking care from multiple providers. These are kind of typical behaviors that we will see in, in different disease states that we sometimes will see in our sickle cell population. But again, it's, it's fairly recognizable. I'm a big fan of the prescription drug monitoring program that we have available here. And I think 49 out of the 50 states now have have some form of this. And it, it's great because you get, can very easily get a sense of what the patient's history of opioid, at least the outpatient use is. Well, we use Epic and that has care everywhere where we can access other hospitals' records. And then we have something called CRISP. Uh, where, again, we can access other hospital records. So we can see that patient that's gone from hospital to hospital. Uh, Sometimes we see it in the sickle cell patients, but in other chronic conditions like gastroparesis or other other conditions where they're coming in with with painful episodes uh, that are difficult to evaluate and treat, it's, it's kind of the same thing over and over again. So I think uh, you mentioned that the rate of addiction is no different in this disease than any other disease. And just looking at those 2014 uh, sickle cell guidelines that you mentioned, uh, there's good evidence that patients get relief from opioids. And this seems like a condition that uh, really necessitates opioids, both in children and in adults. And it's interesting because we had a recent podcast where one of the paradigms we ha- we kind of addressed was try to keep opioid patients naive, of try not to get people started down that pathway if you can. But this is a different patient population. Would you agree? I would agree. The the primary treatment of a vasoclusive episode, which is 95% of what we're going to see in the emergency department, is opioids. However, I do support the notion in general of keeping opioid naive patients naive to opioids. I, I, I love that idea. So I do think that there's a lot of work that can be done in the sickle cell population early on. And I think that sometimes we miss the boat if we haven't sort of set expectations and developed coping skills and other pain management skills early on. I think one of the toughest transitions that sickle cell patients have is when they transition from childhood care to adult care. They they tend to get lost uh, in that transition, and then all of a sudden they're they're reaching out in any way they can to to manage their pain. But I think that by developing skills early on, then then we can help them out so that their reliance on opioids is a little bit less. I'm also a, a in favor of all kinds of research that can be done on finding other ways to treat vasoclusive episodes with things other than opioids, but currently we don't we don't have much to offer. Gentry, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. We tend to make uh, complex problems simple because it's easier to think about, and the current simplicity to the crowd. Difficult problem is that patients who have chronic pain shouldn't receive opioids, whereas patients who have acute pain are entitled to them. And that seems to be backward from what we have to do to treat the sickle patient accurately, since they're not really having simple acute pain. They're having recurrent acute pain. Acute exacerbations of a chronic illness that normally we would say that's not something that's going to get better with opioids, but in this case, that seems to be exactly what we need to do. The the problem lies in the fact that we don't have a test for the patient that's in an acute crisis. We can't, there's no vital sign, there's no lab test, there's no imaging, there's no physical exam finding that can truly determine whether it's an acute vasoocclusive episode or whether it's an exacerbation of their chronic pain. Now, we, we all know that it's probably some overlap of all of this. You know, is it a manifestation of their avascular necrosis, the chronic pain because of that. And I agree for for run-of-the-mill chronic pain patients, yeah, opioids 
are not the best thing for them. But with sickle cell patients, because we just don't know what's going on with them, you know, the the prevailing thought is we got to take them at their word that this is an acute crisis and that we we treat it like it is. I'm curious, just from your perspective, as this was the first paradigm that you put forth that we need to change in our minds, was there something, was there a specific uh, patient encounter or something that happened that really made you see that this was a problem? Was there kind of a uh, a light bulb that went off for you at, at a certain shift or anything that really prompted this? Uh, or is this just the culmination of seeing time after time that we're not doing the best that we can? You know, I don't think I don't think that there was a, a light switch that got that got turned on uh, for me with this. I think it was something that slowly developed where I realized, you know, I was I was probably being a jerk to some of these patients. <laughs> Freely admit that, and then realized that I could do a lot better. We've had a number of sickle cell patients who have who have died because of complications here in the in the past few years. So realizing. You know, this is not a simple disease. This is a pretty bad disease. Now, that with my involvement in the opioid crisis, I, I kind of like thinking that my sickle cell work and my opioid work is, you know, if you look at a Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap with it. And I think that by working on both those things, I can improve the care of many of my patients. I have spoken about it previously, but I, I was a pain patient at one point when I broke eight ribs in multiple places and uh, ended up having titanium plates put in my my chest. I've now had the experience where I had pain issues and luckily I had resources that most patients don't have. You know, I was able, after I got flown back to Baltimore, I was able to get into interventional pain management right away and had great family and support at home. This is not what most people have. Um, so I was luckily able to get off of opioids much faster than they thought I was and get back to work and be productive. So, you know, I, I think that drawing on my experience as a uh, post-traumatic pain patient, that helps me give, get a lot more empathy with these patients. I appreciate you sharing that. I think that you know lends a lot of perspective to to the approach of this, and I think it's easy for those of us that you know haven't had to go through that to take a kind of a, a different approach to patients that come in with that. So thank you. I have another <laughs> direction to send you. I grew up in an age in medicine when Demerol was considered a great drug, and Literally millions of doses were successfully used to treat patients' pain. One of the things that I discovered in my interaction with cyclists is that they prefer Demerol to other forms of opioids. So then we have the combination of refusing to give them what they need in the first place and refusing to use what works best for them in the second place. Do you have any uh, experience with why they like Demerol and find it useful and whether or not it's still anathema to use it? I kind of feel fortunate that that I all my practice has been in the era post Demerol, pretty much been removed from the armamentarium in most emergency departments. Demerol is or meperidine is a great analgesic. There's no doubt that it's got great analgesic properties. One of the problems with it is it had a large euphoric effect, um, which some patients preferred. If, you know, if you're experiencing lots of pain, getting a little euphoria probably wouldn't be something that you're really averse to. You probably would welcome a little bit of, of relief in that regard. But one of the main problems with meperidine is that it's renally excreted, and in patients that are presenting with uh, sickle cell pain, they they may not be able to excrete the active metabolite, which is normaparidine. The accumulation of normaparidine lowers the seizure threshold, and that really was the driving force for why um, it got removed in general from emergency departments. And in sickle cell patients in particular, because up to 30% of adult patients will have some degree of sickle cell nephropathy, it was generally thought that that's just too high of a risk population to continue to use that medication. Now, 
we went through that era of Demerol and then Demerol getting removed, but now we're in an era where a lot of emergency departments are moving away from hydromorphone or dilaudid. You often hear about these dilaudid-free EDs or um, opioid-free EDs, which I kind of don't like the idea of that because I think that what that is doing is it's broadcasting the stigma a dilaudid free ED, when you're promoting that, you're basically saying most patients that present with pain are probably pain-seeking, and we're just not going to give that at all. So, you know, I, I, I don't like the approach that that has. I think that um, it leads to a lot of biases, and, you know, I think it's kind of unfortunate. What's your experience at the hospitals that you were working at? Are you using dilaudid or... So I'll say that in Tucson, we have we, we have dilaudid. We try to do morphine first. We try to uh, address patients that have allergies that are minor with Benadryl, some of the other uh, diphenhydramines, some of the other adjuncts to try to get them uh, appropriate morphine equivalents. But the most interesting thing I've seen over 10 years is that nurses uh, are really hesitant to give 8 milligrams of morphine, but they have no problem pushing 2 milligrams of hydromorphone, <laughs> not realizing that it's way more than they're actually giving. So I found that uh, we tell the nurses to dilute it, put it in a 10, uh, a 10 ml flush, push it really slowly, because I, I think a lot of what they get is uh, patients get from a high, whether that's a pleasant or an unpleasant experience for them, is uh, you can't help but push two milligrams really quickly compared to eight. Right. You know, we experienced that. I worked the overnight shift this weekend, Friday and Saturday night. And Saturday night, we had that exact experience. We had a, a nurse who came in questioning an order of, of eight milligrams of morphine for a patient. It wasn't a sickle cell patient, but it was a, you know, it was a, like a 90 kilogram male who had some painful episode going on. So eight, eight milligrams of morphine is a completely appropriate dose. And the nurse just wasn't familiar with it. Even though for our sickle cell patients, we regularly regularly give two milligrams or even four milligrams of dilaudid, which, as you point out, is a much higher morphine milligram equivalent. I think many of our residents don't understand the difference. And I believe that was the source of some of the reluctance to keep using dilaudid is it's seems like you're being prudent when you order two milligrams as opposed to the usual dose of morphine. So they tend to underdose morphine and overdose that are loaded. I think this gets to the the point that you're trying to make with how we treat patients with sickle cell and you know anyone with chronic pain if we can't have it be an us versus them of well this is what the patient wants and that means that it must be wrong uh, I'm the doctor I'm the one who decides what's right for you and what's not and I think that that's a it's a, a very dangerous approach to some of these patients and that's how we miss some of the stuff which you bring up in the the next paradigm which is that vasoocclusive episodes or a diagnosis of exclusion. That's how we get to anchoring. This is yet another patient with sickle cell disease coming in with pain, load them up on the pain pathway, walk away, see the next patient, and that can be incredibly dangerous. Yeah, these these patients have had however many episodes in the past and have had to present to hospital after hospital for the uh, treatment of this. So it's understandable that over time they have figured out what works for them. And when they say, doc, my pain is usually controlled with, you know, this regimen. Well, right there, that's, that's one of the red flags for drug seeking behavior, right? Um, however, this is somebody that, that knows more about their disease than we know about it. Um, so we have to be careful just ascribing that to drug seeking behavior and kind of take them at their word. You mentioned the, the fact that we underdose their pain crises all the time. That's that's absolutely true. We did a a uh, a small study looking at our patients, and we basically dichotomized them into two different groups. Where we looked at what dose of opioids previously controlled their pain during uh, vasoocclusive episodes, and we said for the next episode when they came in. Did they get at least 
of that morphine milligram equivalent, or did they get less than 50%? And we found that patients that got underdosed less than 50% of the previously effective dose, their rate of admission was significantly higher than those that got treated what we consider appropriately. So, yeah, I think that we one of the things when they come in, look at what what was effective for them previously. Talk to them, ask them what works for them, and then try to dose them appropriately. You may decrease the rate of admission in that regard. Are there other devices that could be used? We've started using ketamine instead of opiates in a lot of painful situations. Has that been tried? Absolutely. I think that this goes back to where I was saying I think we need to do a lot of research in alternative methods because right now opioids is the tried and true. That's the recommended first-line agent. But you mentioned ketamine. That's a great idea. There are a number of case reports and case series. So far, there is no published randomized controlled trial looking at ketamine in sickle cell patients. There was one trial that was underway in in uh, Brooklyn, not at the hospital that I worked at, but it it was uh, discontinued, and I don't know the reasons why it was discontinued. I believe that there's another study going on, um, maybe in Florida, but uh, so far nothing published. So hopefully somebody will work on that. I have tried to use ketamine at my facility, although we had some limitations because it was still being treated as a moderate sedation, so there's all sorts of, I mean, the, the burden on uh, on doing that is is really high because you got to get consent, the airway box, the monitoring. It's just not that simple, even when you're giving a sub-dissociative dose for uh, pain management. So yeah, that's definitely an area that needs to be researched. IV lidocaine, another thing to consider. So there are things out there. We just don't have the evidence yet. So tell me a little more about how people are viewing vaso-occlusive crises on their own and kind of missing some of the other things. Is this your typical anchoring bias that, well, the patient has a vaso-occlusive crisis, this is what they always come in with, and so this must be it again? Or is there something specific about sickle cell disease that people are missing the boat on on a regular basis? So sickle cell disease affects every organ system. These patients have complications um, related to skin, joints, uh, spleen, liver, heart, kidneys, brain, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you always have to think about what kind of complication can be happening with this patient. When the patient comes in and they're saying, this is, you know, I'm having a pain crisis, I'm having pain in my, my arms, legs, you know, that's, that's fine. Most of the time, that's probably going to be their vasoclusive crisis, but you got to do a good physical exam and you have to keep in the back of your mind, could this be something else? Could this be a septic joint? Could this be a DVT? The, the incidence of uh, septic arthritis, the incidence of DVT, all of these things are increased in sickle cell patients. So our level of concern for these other diagnoses should be should be raised, and we need to do a good history and a good physical exam and not just a cursory one and get them on that pain pathway as we talked about. There was one example, the patient that we had, probably 30, 30-year-old patient with sickle cell who was a, uh, we're now calling them MVPs or multi-visit patients. He came in frequently for sickle cell pain, difficult to manage. He had some behavioral issues and, you know, I, I would say that his treatment was often not the best. And he came in multiple times with uh, a joint pain, which he said was typical of his, of his crises. And one day I, I was fortunate to take care of him. And and I'll I'll say I probably got lucky, but I did a pretty good thorough exam. Noticed that his joint that was, he's been bothered by was swollen. It was red, it was inflamed. And uh, turns out, well, at at that visit, he left AMA. But on the next visit, he came in, it was floridly septic arthritis. Uh, He ended up getting Massive infection there. It got disarticulated. He had uh, a lot of complications. He ended up dying later on that year from other complications uh, related to a sickle cell disease. But that was something that probably was missed multiple times on presentations. And I, you know, I don't want to 
fault everybody for it, and I, I think that I got fortunate in, in recognizing it, but we have to keep this suspicious nature in the, in the back of our mind for all these different complications that can happen. What other adjunctive treatments are you using? I remember there was a wave of enthusiasm for IV urea, which didn't seem terribly useful over time. So, so other treatments, we talked about other pain medicines, ketamine, uh, lidocaine. There's, there's really not much that's been studied and proven to be effective. I personally am not a fan of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in sickle cell vasoclusive episodes. It, it actually is recommended by the NHLBI, not a consensus recommendation. It's it's actually a moderate recommendation with a low level of evidence. I, I started to do a systematic review on this. I'm not I'm not done. It's one of the many things that is <laughs> taking a back burner a bit. But um, basically, what we were finding was it it didn't reduce the rate of admission. It didn't reduce the opioid requirement. It didn't necessarily reduce the pain levels of these patients. And the potential for harm is really great. We talk about patients that have a 30% risk of developing chronic kidney disease by the time they're an adult. They're presenting in their most vulnerable time during a vaso-occlusive episode, and then we're going to give a nephrotoxic agent. So to me, it just never made any sense why we would give a medicine that hasn't been shown to benefit and has a great potential to harm these patients. Now that the life expectancy is is getting better and better for patients with sickle cell disease, they're going to have an accumulation of chronic um, issues and things that we're doing when they're 10 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old, that could be really affecting them 15, 20, 30 years down the road. So we have to keep that in mind. NSAIDs really, in my opinion, are not part, they're not part of my treatment of sickle cell patients during a vasoclusive episode. Other things that have been looked at, steroids, this hasn't panned out too well. There was some evidence that it it did reduce admissions, but then the bounce back rate was high and the outcome of the patients that bounced back wasn't so great. So that really didn't get put forward. I think that there's some I think there's some work by Jeffrey Glassberg up in New York looking at that again. Um, I don't know where he is with that or um, what's going on, but I think that as of right now, steroids are not really the the thing to do. There are some other treatments that are being investigated, some industry-funded stuff, and I've been involved with that. And I think it's kind of excited, exciting to be in part of the evaluation of these these new medicines. Uh, there's a smaller biotech company called Prolonged Pharmaceuticals, and they created this this drug. The, the brand name is Sanguinate, which is a bovine carboxyhemoglobin, which sounds pretty cool, but basically the gist of it is it increases the oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood uh, by giving this medicine. So a small, I was part of a small randomized blinded trial, and we don't know the the uh, outcome of it yet we we enrolled a, a small sample of patients and you know it's up to the sponsor to do all the data analysis and we're still waiting for the, for the outcome of that study so that'll be interesting and then i'm involved in a larger uh, study on a medicine called rivipancel which is a panselectin inhibitor this is a study that's sponsored by pfizer and the idea of a panselectin inhibitor is it reduces the inflammation that's experienced in sickle cell disease. So sickle cell disease, it's not just the sickling of red blood cells. It's, a, it's an activation of all sorts of things, including the inflammatory cascade. By blocking the selectins, which are present on pretty much every blood cell, uh, you're you're reducing that inflammatory component. At least that's what it seems to show in mice and in preliminary studies. So right now we're involved in the in the larger phase three study, and it's an ongoing study. I think there's 50 patients left to be enrolled in it, and uh, the results will be forthcoming. But there's a number of other medicines that are being developed in, in research. So hopefully we get some more stuff out there because this is a disease process that I think research has largely left behind for decades. When you look at the drugs that are approved for sickle cell disease, right now there's there's two. 
It's hydroxyurea, which was approved, I believe, in 1998 in adults, and it just got approved in kids in 2017. And then L-glutamine, which was approved in July of 2017. And that's it. That's that's it for approved drugs for the indication of sickle cell disease. So definitely an area that that uh, has not been met. I do a lot of work with angioedema and hereditary angioedema. This is this is a disease process that only affects one in fifty thousand people. Yet there's there's now lots of medicines that are approved and many more that are coming down the the pipe for this really rare disease. But then with sickle cell, where it's it's a much greater incidence of disease. We still have very few drugs available to us. Has anybody tried hyperbarics for acute crisis? I, I have seen some literature on that. I'm not familiar with too much on that. I don't think that it's anything that's gotten a lot of a lot of press or uh, popularity. But yeah, I have. I haven't. I know that there's been some some small stuff done on that, but I, I don't know enough about it to, to really speak to it. It's a good question. I think there's uh, when we're learning about sickle cell disease, especially in Tucson, where we have a we have a fairly sizable African refugee population, but not a huge sickle cell population. So we try to train our residents about acute chest syndrome and splenic sequestration and stroke and all of the big dangerous things. But the day in and day out of what you're going to see is going to be the vaso-occlusive crisis. And I think that having some medication and some research in medication directed towards that is very promising and something that you actually could make a difference on. I think when we started the podcast at the beginning, we said this is a disease entity that is uh, affects so many people. And as an emergency doctor, it's so easy to be jaded by seeing this day in day out and feel like I don't have any hope for it. So this is very hopeful to see that we've that people are starting to look more into how can we treat the the more common pro, uh, problem rather than just honing in on waiting until there's an emergency. Right, I I agree. I'm I'm excited to be a part of the development of this and hopefully our efforts are going to pay off and We'll find some additional medications to use in phase-occlusive episodes, which, as you point out, are, are the bulk of what we're going to see as emergency physicians. It's probably about 95% of the presentations of sickle cell patients. It's that other 5% we have to be extra extra careful about. Right. And you mentioned earlier that a lot of patients that are underdosed in their treatment of vaso-occlusive crises, they end up being admitted. And you've actually done a little research in this area to see what happens and how that kind of affects uh, our hospitals, our EDs, and the healthcare system at large. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So... You know, this goes back to the whole idea of a lot of practice variation at, at my facility and every every facility. I think every ED doc probably has a different way of, of doing these things. And um, every emergency department has its own uh, issues with patient flow, getting patients in quick enough, um, comfort level with administration of what tends to be high doses of opioids. At University of Maryland, we're significantly challenged with patient flow and have probably one of the worst boarding issues in the in the country. Um, it's not uncommon for our sickle cell patients to wait in the waiting room for six, eight, 10, 12 hours before they get seen by a provider, um, which violates every notion of acute pain management that can be imagined. One of the NHLBI guidelines is that patients with sickle cell disease should be given a ESI triage category of uh, level two, um, which kind of puts them towards the front of the line, not necessarily the front of the line, but it definitely encourages their their rapid assessment and treatment. This is something that that we haven't been able to accomplish at University of Maryland yet. They're they're still typically given a ESI of 3 unless they have some other obvious uh, thing going on with with abnormal vital signs or some other presentation that's concerning. So that means that they tend to wait and one of the things that I did when I when I read the guidelines was I wanted to look at you know did the implementation of these guidelines reduce the time to evaluation of the patients? 
I, I wasn't able to get the ESI category changed, but with the implementation of the guidelines and this focus on quick assessment and, and treatment, I was hoping that our providers were, were getting more involved in it. And unfortunately, did not show any significant change. The, the average time from registration to administration of the first analgesic went from uh, roughly I think it was three and a half hours to just under three hours, which was, there was nothing significant about that, not even close to significant decrease in the time. And then I looked at time from first dose to the second dose, and, and there, there was no significant change there. Our admission rate didn't go down. None of the metrics that I looked at with implementation of this guideline actually improved, which was a little disappointing because put a lot of work into the guideline. But, you know, I'm still happy that the guideline's there. I'm, I'm constantly teaching about it, educating our providers that it exists, encouraging them to use it. We created an order set in Epic based on the guidelines to help streamline what providers were going to be ordering. And, and now I'm excited to say that I now have a sickle cell disease nurse navigator program that is a, it's taken a lot of work to get that implemented, but our nurse navigator started work one week ago, and I'm excited to see how this is going to change things. This is a, I have to give a shout out to the American College of Emergency Physicians and Pfizer who gave the seed money for this with a, with a grant. And then the hospital, I, I went to the hospital and said, I've got this grant money. Um, it will in no way cover the entire salary of a nurse for a year. Can you give me some additional money? And and the hospital saw the value in it, and I was able to, to get a large amount of funding to, to help fund this program. So hopefully we're able to um, show the value of the Nurse Navigator program and uh, remains to be seen. We're one week into it. Uh, it's very exciting to get buy-in from a lot of different sources to try to do something that matters. So One of the disappointments of the Human Genome Project is how little difference it's made in the management of genetic diseases. And I think sickle cell is high on that list. Has there ever been any work in trying to end the disease by, say, a a bone marrow transplant with non-sickler? Yeah, so hematopoietic stem cell transplant is the curative option for sickle cell disease. Uh, this has been something that's been around for for a while now. Um, I don't know exactly, but certainly one or two decades. The problem uh, initially was in order to match somebody in the in the past, there had to be a a sibling um, that that had great. Um, matching. And so that limited it. And then the complications of the stem cell transplants were kind of high. So it really wasn't recommended in the run of the mill sickle cell patient because the, I think the two year survival was only 70, I think it was 79% at one point. So, you know, the cure could be worse than, than the disease. Now, again, there's selection bias because they were probably only doing that in the in the truly sick patients. So, you know, I, I don't know that much about all the data on stem cell transplants because it's not, you know, much in the in the realm of what I do in the emergency department. But I do know that they're starting to expand the pool of potential donors. So that's something that you know, as they're honing their skills in stem cell transplants, we're probably going to see more of that and better outcomes. So definitely something that that's in the future. But yeah, it, it'd be great if we could figure out some cure because you know, sickle cell disease comes from a point mutation. It's It seems like it would be such an easy thing to fix, but not yet. We're not there yet. So it seems like if I can summarize the best thing that emergency doctors can do to aid in the care and kind of decrease some of the burden that sickle cell disease puts on just the entire system is to make sure that we adequately, aggressively treat pain and don't 
put these patients on a pathway that we never check on them again, but to really look a little bit deeper as we would with somebody that has, uh, you know, any chronic illness, the, COD, the COPD patient that we need to make sure doesn't have a pneumo, the asthmatic that we have to make sure isn't having anaphylaxis. I mean, this, these are conditions that are chronic, and you said we see 90% of the time it's going to be vasoocclusive crisis, but just a little bit extra diligence in uh, looking to make sure we don't miss anything else. How much reliance do you put in a patient's history when you ask them, I think of like a migraine as a corollary, is this like your typical pain crises and if they say yep this feels exactly like normal okay well then we're going to put you into the pain pathway uh, and I'm just going to make sure everything else is squared away versus the patient that says normally I have pain in my back and my arms now I have pain just on the left side just in my legs just in my head yeah I you know I take that into account greatly if these patients know their disease process better than we know so when they say that there's something different about this it it makes me really think okay are we missing something is you know if they're saying i typically get back pain but now i've got left arm pain okay well did you have a pick line recently in that arm is there something that i need to worry about which could have increased your risk of having a upper extremity dvt are you having any fevers are you having uh, a hot joint to you know what do i need to think about and you know if as long as i've thought about these other bad things that can happen and uh, and i've evaluated it appropriately then okay they can they can kind of just be managed like a vaso-occlusive episode. It sounds kind of silly of like, all right, the, the paradigm shift has to be make sure you don't miss the simple stuff, but it's the simple stuff that we tend to gloss over. But, you know, the exciting thing that you're doing with some of this research, I, I think that it hopefully it, it pans out and that it has some great potential to, to make a big difference. Is there any anything else that you want to highlight about some of the work that you're doing right now, this kind of new and up-and-coming things? So mostly, you know, with the Sickle Cell Navigator program, which is a it's a quality improvement project. That said, I'm still going to be looking at outcomes because I can't help but look at that sort of thing. But I think that it has a great potential to reduce the healthcare utilization, which is um, when when these patients get admitted because we have not met their needs for analgesia. There's a huge burden on the healthcare system. The, the patients, once they get admitted, the average length of stay for a sickle cell patient is five days. The downstream effect is that's going to increase the number of patients that stay in your hospital. That's a bed that's not going to be able to be used for another patient. And there's a, a cumulative problem with that. I, I get a report every day of our multi-visit patients who are admitted to the hospital for sickle cell disease. And... The report today is astonishing. There's there's like a dozen sickle cell patients who are currently admitted to the hospital. So these are patients that are taking a bed. If I could have helped their pain earlier on and gotten them out of the hospital, maybe that's going to reduce the crowding. The benefit to me is immense. If I am not admitting a sickle cell patient, I'm able to admit another patient that has some other disease process going on. So so there's a great benefit to me in uh, trying to adequately treat these patients and, and find other ways to utilize healthcare resources that may not be inpatient admission or emergency department. And clearly a benefit to them as well. Do you find that there's a window that we have in the ED that if we get a patient's pain controlled within a certain amount of time, we can probably abort the admission versus sending them into almost a you know, a, a, a status of uh, just pain of where now it's going to take a long time to get this broken. Yeah, I don't, I don't have the data to definitively say it, but I, I agree with that statement. I think that when a patient presents with a vasoclusive episode, the clock is kind of ticking. And if, if you can get their pain managed earlier, you can avoid that admission. However, if they're sitting in the waiting room for six to 10 hours, you know, that ship has sailed. They, they're they probably not going to be able to get appropriate analgesia. And even if they do have appropriate analgesia, they probably have some level of fear of being discharged with this idea of, 
what if my pain comes back and I have to sit another six to 10 hours in the waiting room before I get, get treated? So they're probably going to be hesitant to be discharged. And I, I can't say I blame them. We failed them when we, when we park them in the waiting room for so long. I was very impressed with how different the management of these patients were once the hematology department set up a pain program for them. And I hate to admit it, but I think a lot of that is biased racism. When the hematologist calls you and says, here's the dose of medicine you need to give Mr. Jones, he gets it faster, and nobody thinks about whether this is a, a, another black patient pain pill seeking. Before that, we had the same issues you do. Patient sits in triage and sits in triage and maybe finally gets evaluated by someone. So maybe we have to overcome our own unknown biases in order to do a better job with sickle disease. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's lots of work uh, that's been shown that not only is there explicit bias where people are outright racist uh, sometimes, even in the medical community, which is just so sad that to think that that exists, there's that's implicit bias. I think all of us have to recognize that we're, we have implicit biases and you know, studies have shown that patients that present with other acute painful episodes like biliary colic or renal colic, they get treated faster than patients with sickle cell disease, even you know without any evidence of explicit bias. So the only reasonable explanation is there's an implicit bias going on. So you know you mentioned when a hematologist calls up and says, "Oh, the dose that this patient should get is this," and you know it greases the the track to to have that appropriately given. I like the idea of a lot of individualized care plans, and that's one of the things that the nurse navigator role is going to help establish, developing care plans for our individual patients so that there isn't a lot of kind of wondering what's the right thing to do for this patient when they come in. And I think that once we get those established, it's going to make it a lot easier to, to have all the providers on board with with the various treatments that, that are recommended. And it makes it easier with, with nursing as well. You know, you can say to nursing, this is their care plan. They're like, oh, okay, that's fine. I find that with uh, when the provider is not comfortable with the disease in front of them, it really makes, uh, I can speak for myself, it makes me question a lot of what I do. I'm the one who's treating this condition. I'm not particularly comfortable with this condition. I don't know enough about it. Therefore, I'm hesitant to do what the patient is telling me to do, what, uh, you know, maybe I've read about in books or papers have been trained, but I just don't have the level of comfort that I should. And you get a specialist on the phone that you may or may not have ever met in person, and they tell you to do something. And well, now I've transferred that discomfort onto a specialist, so I'm just going to, you know, spread this around a little bit more. And I think that just a little bit of what you've done in educating people on the podcast uh, hopefully increases people's comfort. And now it's all spread upon you. Of uh, well, I heard I heard Dr. Wilkinson say this, so it's probably a good idea. <laughs> uh, but it really does help though to have somebody say like it's okay if you need to treat this pain aggressively because this is what the patient needs great thank you yeah.